all of a sudden these tradable cats made it like, oh crap, we have to do this done now. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I am Michael Casey. It has been an action-packed past few months for the blockchain smart contract platform, Ethereum. On December 1st, Ethereum developers launched the long-awaited first step known as Phase Zero in the massive Ethereum 2.0 protocol upgrade. They launched something called the Beacon Chain, which among other features, allows validators to try out a new proof-of-stake consensus model. We'll go into details of what the incredibly complex upgrade entails later in the show, but for now, it's suffice to say that it couldn't be coming at a more urgent moment. That's because Ethereum is going through one of its most intense growth spurts, pushing the network's transaction processing capacity to its limit. There's the giant surge in activity in the red-hot decentralized finance ecosystem, better known as DeFi, where participants lend, borrow, and provide other financial contracts in a decentralized system without intermediaries. Some $38 billion worth of value is now locked up as collateral, up from just $1 billion early last year, according to DeFi Pulse. There's also a bit of a frenzy in non-fungible tokens, or NFTs as they're commonly known, a topic we'll be exploring next week. NFTs are at the forefront of what looks like quite a moment in the short history of digital collectibles. A growing number of people are buying and selling tokenized digital art and other unique scarce collectibles based on the Ethereum ERC721 token standard. All of this, along with the influx of money from institutions and corporate treasurers into Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies generally, as well as the launch of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange's new futures contracts for Ether, that is Ethereum's native currency, has caused the price of that token to skyrocket. This week, ETH prices hit a new all-time high above $1,900, and many believe this is only the beginning. But for all the good news, it's also created congestion in the Ethereum blockchain as the number and size of transactions for DeFi and other activities has grown resulting in a surge in so-called gas fees, the pricing mechanism by which Ethereum miners are paid to validate transactions, execute smart contracts, and maintain the network. This brings us to the bigger issue of scalability as it pertains to Ethereum 2.0 and its efforts to resolve that. So to explain all that and give us an assessment of how the 2.0 process is going, we could not have come up with a better guest than this week's. Danny Ryan, a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation, has become a key player both in ensuring that the Ethereum 2.0 process moves forward and communicating that internally and externally. But before we get to Danny, let's, as we always do, welcome my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hello, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So this is just, I mean, I know this is getting a bit of a cliche, but wow, what a week. (laughs) By the way, I have to do a shameless plug. Coindesk TV launched this week. We're extremely excited about it. 
Really exciting development. Congratulations. Thank you. And and Money Reimagined itself is going to be one of the, the launch shows. I do believe, am I, I think I'm correct in saying this show. I, don't, I should have known this in advance. This Pretty show, sure. it is this show is going show. to be on Saturday yeah. shown on the TV. So that's very, very exciting. Look, we didn't didn't arrange this. There were no calls put into Elon Musk or anything like that earlier in the week <laughs> to coordinate here. But yes, the very day that we launched our first mover, which is the show that starts at nine o'clock in the morning, is the day that Tesla announced that it bought $1.5 billion of Bitcoin and the price soared through new highs and, and everything's set off into another frenzy. But you know what it feels like? And I don't know, I'd just like to get your take. I know this has been coming, but this week in particular feels like it truly has mainstreamed crypto, blockchain. It feels like it, and all the crazy meme talk, of course, the Dogecoins, you know, somehow it's, it's front and center in the national conversation right now. That's the feeling I get. Yeah. You know, I do think the, the normalization of crypto, certainly as a corporate holding or corporate investment, I do think that we have reached a new level of understanding around that. Now, the extent to which I think that translates into, you know, average consumer awareness, I think is a different question. But I do think it's, it is not going to be surprising to see more and more companies, I would say, become more open about their holdings, right? It's not so much that they're going to, I think, suddenly be buying, it's that they're going to kind of be more transparent about what they're holding. So I know some of the big university endowments are certainly holding uh, various forms of crypto, and that's been they've been more open about that and conversations about that have been happening. So I think we're just going to see a realization that those who have not <laughs> kind of thrown their crypto hat in the ring have made a mistake, <laughs> one could say. So I do think that there is that normalization that's happening. You know, I assume that next week or our next episode, there'll be some new announcement that we'll be talking about with probably over time, less surprise and astonishment than we were, you know, even a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago. It's great to see. Yeah. No, it's, it's certainly exciting to be in, in the media space covering this. I can tell you that much. Okay. So a couple of things I think gives us a nice segue here to Danny. And, and the one is that up until I think almost just now, I mean, well, maybe a little bit earlier, but Bitcoin has dominated this mainstream conversation in this particular cycle. That, that's, that seems to go back and forth. And certainly with you know, these big names talking about investing in it, Ether has had a fabulous run up in price. DeFi has been this explosive thing. A lot going on in the Ethereum world, as I laid out in the monologue. But the other point here that I think is important, and this is where the show, you know, we're going to try to get Danny to help us here with, is as we go mainstream, we run up as we always do against that knowledge barrier, the learning curve, the understanding. And, and look, for the average person, Ethereum is complicated. It, it's a phenomenally big, expansive, wild idea that has still got a long way to go, but it, it's something that really needs to be broken down in, in an understanding. So Danny, welcome to the show. So I've just, I've set you up there. You're going to have to, you know, basically give the standard, what is Ethereum? I gave my description, maybe something very quick that you have in your back pocket here would be useful for viewers who are not familiar. But the other one is like, just to talk through what the foundation does and a little bit about, you know, you as the CEO of the foundation, you're the CEO of Ethereum, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> that joke, of course, is there for a reason, right? Because <laughs> There's obviously no one in charge in a classic sense of corporate organization. And that's not something that the average person can get their head around always so easily. I think, and, and you kind of set it up this way, I'm going to use Bitcoin as a foil to talk about what Ethereum is. And I think first and foremost, uh, which is maybe interesting for listeners to understand, is that many would argue Bitcoin is done. Bitcoin as a technology exists and it does what it does. 
Whereas Ethereum is not. Ethereum is, is quite simply a work in progress. There are many things that Ethereum developers, Ethereum community are trying to accomplish. And to do that, there is still iterative work to be done. And I spent a lot of my time uh, working on that iterative work in terms of specifications and long-term kind of roadmaps and development. But it is a plane in flight. And although it is not done, there's a kind of very exciting things going on in Ethereum. To that end, similarly, I'll use Bitcoin as a foil. Uh, Bitcoin is very profoundly revolutionary in, in being able to uh, manage an asset and transfer an asset in a decentralized way and have certain security properties in this like global network around this asset. But foundationally, what Bitcoin does is it, it has a ledger around this asset, Bitcoin, and rules around the movement of this asset amongst parties. Whereas with Ethereum, you take similar concepts on how to manage this foundational asset in a decentralized way, but instead of just that asset, Bitcoin or Ether, allow for more extensible and arbitrary computation and resolution on this decentralized ledger. That's maybe a little bit abstract. So instead of just a transaction on this global decentralized ledger, moving an asset, this transaction instead can do computation, can modify state, can update, can conditionally move things, interact with things. And that kind of general extensibility opens up the world of what we call decentralized applications. And so instead of just moving around assets, we're creating kind of decentralized applications. And as you said, one of the huge use cases today is DeFi, decentralized finance, all sorts of rules and programming around essentially taking these decentralized networks and putting new financial rails out there. But there's all sorts of other exciting things going on. I think drilling down sometimes into what a DAP is, a decentralized app versus a regular app is a useful one for people because they know that you know, the app that they have on their phone is managed and controlled by a centralized entity that can cut them off at any time, right? And then, but the concept of a decentralized app is that there's a network of with nobody in charge, essentially coordinated through this protocol to manage that app on your behalf and that that enables a whole host of interactivity and exchange and and you said like changes of state that could never be possible if you were just working with a centralized thing. There's interesting properties in terms of security if you don't have central entities involved in, in certain types of exchanges and, and maybe in terms of cost, uh, it might be cost minimizing when you don't have a third party involved. But something beyond just those kind of decentralization and security properties, in DeFi, we've seen this like people call, say they call it money Legos. In the sense that like in traditional finance, if asset A was going to interact with asset B, or there, there might be like particular programmatic ways that they're allowed to, or you have to do it through a bank and they only allow you to do certain things. And often things are still settled on paper and stuff like that. Whereas in decentralized finance and built onto a generically programmable blockchain like Ethereum, there's permissionless innovation on these financial rails. And so I can peer into this protocol or that type of contract. And I, I can say to myself, well, wouldn't it be interesting or wouldn't it be valuable if we could interact with it in this other way? And you can extend and kind of build upon these, as they say, money Legos. So I, I like that frame. I think that's interesting. It's helpful. I think we've talked a little bit on the show about how with Bitcoin, there's uh, the protocol, then there's the governance layer, and then there's the coin itself. And so the same thing is, is true in Ethereum. I think that ETH, which is the coin equivalent, it doesn't get the same uh, media attention and just kind of, kind of not caught on the public awareness, but there's a similarity there. I think one of the differences important to talk about is gas fees. And so the idea that 
ETH is used a lot to actually enable some of the things that you're talking about. And so could you talk a little bit about, about gas and how it works and how that's a concept that's quite important to the ecosystem? So fundamentally in these decentralized networks, there's usually some sort of scarce resource that is valuable to users. On the Bitcoin network, that's quite simply block space. And it's usually defined in terms of bytes. And there's a fee market because there's a scarce resource that people want to utilize. And there's a fee market and usually in the Bitcoin world, you pay a price per amount of bytes that are going to go into the blockchain when you submit transactions. And so depending on the day, depending on the usage, there's a going rate for that. And it's going to cost, I don't know, you know, call it one penny to $100, depending on the supply and demand there. In Ethereum, the scarce resource is more multidimensional. So it's more complex in that there's many things that the, at a low level, the Ethereum blockchain can do. It can store things uh, in terms of like storing values, storing state, storing objects. It can do arbitrary computations. So it can add things together. Uh, it can divide them out, it can move them around. And it does have this like notion of block space as well. And so there's this abstract concept called gas. The relative complexity of all these operations is priced in, in this like gas. So it might cost one gas to add two numbers, but it might cost a thousand gas to store something in the state of Ethereum. The, so the scarce resource is really how much gas can be in a block. Similarly to Bitcoin, how, how many bytes can be in, in the size of these blocks. And so there's this fee market. It might cost some amount of ETH per unit of gas is like the going market rate for that. And so there's a fee market naturally around that. And if you want to do a simple operation, it might cost a, a small amount of money to transact. Whereas if you want to do a, a complex operation, like interact with eight different DeFi protocols in the same transaction, end a loan, do a flash loan here, there, spend this money and transfer 10 things, that's a much more complex operation. And so it uses more of this scarce resource, which is kind of abstractly the block space. And so that might be a much more expensive operation. And gas also creates incentives. It creates incentives for Ethereum miners that get paid in this way. And so it's something, the fees rather. And so it's something that provides motivation for people to remain within the ecosystem. Right. So the miners, the kind of consensus participants, um, they are paid out in, in block issuance. So Ether is generated when new blocks are created. But additionally, they do get paid by including valuable transactions. They're always kind of listening to the network and looking for the most valuable transactions in terms of the amount of gas they use and the amount of ether they're willing to pay per gas. So the ultimate fee you pay it out to them. They want to include valuable transactions so they can get the most, most fees. Yeah. And so given that you have this complex system, you've got a lot of different players who are constantly you know, monitoring the ecosystem to figure out like what they're going to put in and all of this. And combined with the fact that no one owns or controls Ethereum, right? So there is the Ethereum Foundation, of which you know you are a researcher there, and that is an entity, but it does not own Ethereum or control Ethereum. So how does that work? Like, how do you make decisions about how to develop something when there's no ultimate arbiter? There's no hierarchy there. How does that work? How, how do you herd the cats? Is the way. <laughs> <I would argue. laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's tough. I mean, there's. Uh... <laughs> It's quite fundamentally a difficult problem. Ultimately, what a blockchain network is, is what users choose to run and what miners or validators, the consensus entities, choose to show up and validate because they think it's valuable. And that is ultimately dictated by the software that I as a user choose to run and that we as users in aggregate choose to run. Obviously, usually we all agree and we run the same version of the software, but that doesn't always happen. Uh, for example, ETH Classic exists because a number of people decided we're not running same version of the software as everyone else, and we have our own network now. 
So usually we're trying to not do that. Usually we're trying to all agree <laughs> on something. Uh, and if we do iterate and upgrade, as I said, this protocol is not complete. There's many things that the Ethereum community and developers kind of demand from a system like this that we're not quite there. We're working on it. How is that decided? There are many different forums and channels that things are happening. Uh, I think foundationally, any sort of proposal that is going to make it into Ethereum mainnet goes through this EIP process, Ethereum improvement proposal, where people propose ideas, uh, technical specs, essentially. There's a number of community members and editors that like go through and make sure these ideas are actually sound in the sense that like they are implementable, that they say that they do what they say they're going to do. So then you have an EIP that is ultimately implementable, but that doesn't mean it's never going to be implemented. There's many, many more EIPs than have ever been uh, brought into production. And then from there, there's much debate amongst developers, usually in very public settings. There's like an R&D discord. There's like huge active debate every day I wake up and there's like hundreds of unread messages. It's kind of crazy. And there's very public calls uh, where the merits of various proposals are brought to the table. Ultimately, client developers, and there's many client teams, clients are an implementation of the protocol, meaning there are abstractly these rules that are Ethereum, and there are different ways to implement it by writing software. And there's a number of teams that do that. These teams ultimately decide what to bundle in their software. They all try to agree on what they will bundle in that software and which features kind of go in. There's a number of considerations, uh, especially in these early days, on what type of upgrades will make it to mainnet. Often users want certain features, like if they had feature X, they could do this other new fantastic thing on Ethereum. And there's a lot of people that want to do this new fantastic thing on Ethereum, and maybe it's not too difficult to get out. So that type of proposal every once in a while makes it in. The more critical proposals, uh, rather than just nice to have features, usually start focus around security and scalability. So the primary mandate, I'd say, for the next few years of Ethereum developers and of the community is to ensure that Ethereum is secure and to ensure that Ethereum continues to move on its path to scalability. And so a number of the EIPs that make it under consideration um, focus on these two things, security and scalability. And what I spend all of my time on is this more abstract, very large set of upgrades that we're attempting to do called ETH2 which encompass a lot of the scalability work that I've talked about. So I want to pause there for a minute, because I think that something that is so important for even people who are deep in this space don't necessarily understand the complexity around governance, like just how hard this is to do. And I think if you just think about trying to get your group of friends to agree on where you're going on your first post-COVID vacation and how hard that is, you can imagine like <laughs> scale that now, right? Across geographies, <laughs> across preferences, across agendas. And you can imagine the sheer complexity of what has to happen in order for these kinds of changes to be made and then implemented. And so it really is a, I think it's important to draw connections here without getting too lofty about it, you know, to democracy. And so one thing I used to explain governance to people is, you know, we had a constitution in the United States to kind of ground this in an American example. And we were governing a country, we were running a country and we were doing all kinds of stuff while that constitution was still getting kind of baked, right? And then we had the Bill of Rights and that came up and the complexity around that. It was certainly easier to get some of the Bill of Rights through uh, in the earlier days of our country's history than it was to get amendments later. Right. Right? But you still had this mechanism of how you agree upon changing, but it doesn't mean that you're waiting to like launch America. And so the other thing that I'll just say is that you know this whole space we've talked about, this decentralized finance or DeFi space, that exists really on top of Ethereum. At the same time, you're getting a lot of attention around decentralized finance and these new models. 
it's important to recognize that all of that is predicated upon this governance of Ethereum, the, the sort of underlying infrastructure, if you want to put it that way, working and that it's moving in these directions effectively. And that is something that Danny is core to and why we're so excited, Danny, in part to have you on here today. So thanks for walking our audience through that. Yeah. And that's a very apt and interesting uh, comparison. And part of what I believe in these blockchain networks, I think ossification, uh, the core protocol is probably is valuable in the long run and probably by design in a certain sense. And just in the same sense that it's very difficult to amend the constitution today. It's like borderline impossible sometimes. <laughs> yep. Uh, and, and that's maybe a good thing because you can't have giant corporate interests like come in and, and start meddling with the things that are very foundational and, and other things. And like, you can't have very like flippant interactions with the constitution in that way. And similarly, you've seen this, I think massively so in Bitcoin is the protocol is ossified. I think that much of the Bitcoin developer space and much of the Bitcoin user space think it's never upgrading again. It's often described as a feature, not a bug, right? And that, right. that's an aspect. Right. But as you said from the outset, that cannot be the case with Ethereum. Like it has to be this evolving thing. In light of that, I think we're $200 billion now in market cap for ETH. So the, the money at stake in ETH itself, not to mention the value that's captured in DeFi and everything else, is really, really important. There's so much more at stake, which I think brings you to these moments of the comparison, almost the more established state of the American constitution that's hard to change because there's so much more at stake. So in light of everything you've talked about, right, you've got this governance challenge, you have a lot of value. And the more that ETH is rising and the more the DeFi, which you have no control over, the DeFi guys are just going to keep doing their own thing. Well, that's all happening. We talked about gas and what it actually represents. And in some respects, the fees are an encapsulation of the scaling challenge, right? Because there's only so much transactability that can be jammed through the existing base layer blockchain. Okay, so the next phase of this, Danny, all of that set up 2.0. Walk us through, how does it address this challenge? How do you get to a scalability? There are various pieces to it. I've mentioned the beacon chain, giving you a bunch of tasks here. Why does proof of stake matter? And give us a little bit on sharding and how does it all work with this scalability challenge? So... In terms of scalability, as I've mentioned a couple of times in the podcast, these blockchain networks have a certain capacity based upon their design, different design considerations for the particular network. And so there's ultimately a supply and then there's demand. And what we're seeing in Ethereum is that demand outstrips supply and you have, and thus it is very valuable. Uh, people are willing to pay a lot to get into this like limited supply of block space to interact with DeFi and other interesting things on Ethereum. And thus prices a ton of people out naturally because there's just way too many people that are trying to participate on this thing. So it was identified, I think probably before Ethereum was launched that scaling was going to have to be a thing. That the single blockchain paradigm, if consumer machines like my laptop are gonna be able to run and interact with this network is not gonna cut it. And so in early Ethereum foundation blogs, uh, early writings of, of Vitalik, they were talking about there was gonna be this scalability problem, uh, scalability challenge. And sharding is likely a path to get there. There have been a number of paths, uh, research paths that have been gone down. Sharding, Hypercube, I don't know, all sorts of crazy stuff. And ultimately what ETH2 is, is the manifestation of this years and years of research into a, an actual roadmap and development project. In addition to sharding is the swapping of the consensus mechanism from proof of work to proof of stake, meaning that instead of miners securing the protocol, very similar to Bitcoin, using dedicating computational power to the protocol, 
is instead swapping into this uh, other crypto economic consensus called proof of stake in which the consensus entities instead of buying and sophisticated hardware and dedicating energy and computation to the protocol they instead purchase or trade for the foundational asset of the protocol ether and they lock it up and locking in this up has similar properties to dedicating dedicated computational power to the, the protocol from very early on there's been this notion of uh, moving Ethereum's consensus from proof of work to a more secure, sustainable, and scalable protocol. This in early writings in the Ethereum Foundation blog and early writings of Vitalik and other uh, early contributors often involved moving towards uh, proof of stake. Proof of stake, instead of burning tons of computational power as your economic resource uh, for this crypto economic protocol, and instead you lock up capital. And so there you get the more sustainable uh, from an energy and resource consumption perspective. Proof of stake also has, from our research and perspective, uh, better security properties than our proof of work models. There are a few reasons for this. One is that in proof of stake, the capital that is dedicated to the protocol can not only be rewarded, but it can actually be penalized. And so there's this notion of in proof of work, if you do something evil, uh, nobody can burn down your mining farm. Whereas in proof of stake, because the asset is actually in protocol, if the, you do something demonstrably nefarious, your assets can actually be penalized instead of rewarded. Um, so it has different security properties, many actually nice security properties. And we can get into that more if you want. And finally, this third one. So we had sustainability, security, and ultimately scalability. Scalability uh, in Ethereum is likely going to come in the form of sharding, uh, which is essentially putting more resources under the same consensus model. So instead of having like a single chain under the consensus model, you can have many chains in parallel under the consensus model. And sharding is intricately linked to proof of stake consensus because of the requirement to randomly sample and move consensus entities across these different shards. In proof of stake, you have a much more clear and concrete notion of the consensus participants in the, in the form of the validators. So you're able to do more sophisticated orchestration of these validators to make a more scalable system. I don't know if you guys know, Danny, but, but Coindesk is actually now a staker. We're staking on the, on the beacon chain. We That's awesome. We 32 ETH and we're doing it as an experiment. By the way, whatever profit we made, and wow, we, we've actually have made a profit already just by virtue of getting it on the ground floor in December is all going to charity. So I need, I need to put that out there. This is not a way that I'm going to sort of pay for the expansion <laughs> of my team. Most important, it's a, it's a learning experience for us. It's a chance for us to report on this experience and to be there as this fascinating project gets underway. It's called Valid Points. It's a wonderful, really great newsletter written by Christine Kim and William Foxley. So check it out. It's a weekly newsletter that gives an update all the time on where things go. You can find it on coindesk.com. So they're documenting their experience, but like, how are things going so far, right? The beacon chain is one first step and you've locked up how many validators it is, but each has got 32 ETH and they can't get rid of it at this stage. I like to think of it as an interesting bond. It's like they're earning that, <laughs> ETH, but they can't do anything with it. And I'm waiting for somebody to tokenize that. I suppose they already have, and I could maybe find liquidity by selling it out somewhere else. I'm sure someone has created liquidity. <laughs> they're working on it. <laughs> There must be, right? There must be. How's the experience been so far? And, and, and what are you actually trying to learn and develop through this process? As we've said a number of times, Ethereum today is built and secured by a proof of work consensus algorithm. And as I've mentioned, we plan on moving to a proof of stake consensus algorithm that has fundamentally some different properties as well as some scalability gains. 
this is a huge endeavor and being a huge endeavor and being, if you, if you look at the value of Ethereum and, and all the activity there, it needs to be done securely. It needs to be done safely. It needs to be done in a conservative fashion. And so what we've done, what the Ethereum network, um, Ethereum community has done uh, in December was bootstrapped this new proof of stake consensus mechanism in relative isolation from the existing chain. And so December 1st, the Beacon chain was launched. I think it was a half a million ETH locked up in it. And this consensus mechanism is now live, operating, building and securing itself, demonstrating some of the like foundational properties of itself that it can finalize, that it can uh, deal with this like live scenario where there's thousands of, of nodes and tens of thousands, even 100,000 validators uh, distributed across this thing. And what we're doing really is vetting this initial proof of stake consensus mechanism in a production setting. And what we'll do from here is iteratively upgrade that consensus mechanism until it's ready to be the new home for Ethereum. And at which point the proof of work mechanism would be hot swapped for this uh, beacon chain proof of stake mechanism. Whereas at one point in time, the, the previous block would be built by the miners and the next block, these beacon chain validators would then take over. You'd have kind of an uninterrupted sequence of Ethereum state and transactions. Uh, so DeFi at one point would be built by proof of work and at the next point built by proof of stake. And so it's essentially the same activity, but living in a new home. And that is the trajectory. That, that's what we're doing. And simultaneously, the beacon chain will be upgraded and extended to be able to handle more capacity than the current Ethereum chain to provide scalability gains. So let me, again, contextualize this, I think, for some of our listeners who are not maybe more technically minded on this. So, so proof of work and proof of stake are really how these miners, how they have skin in the game. Okay, so their incentives, essentially, there's a, there's a mechanism for how these kind of blocks are created and kind of this whole thing, you know, stays afloat, if you will. So the transition here, you know, I'm trying to think of a, of a good analogy. So GM just came out recently and said, the car company, that they are going to go full electric or full, they're going to move away basically from coal derived fuel. And this is like a giant announcement. Okay. So like every single automobile put out there is now going to be compliant with a brand new set of standards and, and kind of do this. And that is obviously very dramatic and it has huge effects on, on the market. But imagine if to make that decision, they A, had to go to every current GMC owner, like in the entire country sort of get some sort of understanding this was going to happen. It was going to actually affect all of those people, okay? Then what the beacon chain is, it's kind of like a prototype, if you will. It's like, okay, like, here's what it's going to look like. Here's like the first example of this new automobile. And so you can kind of pick the tires on a bit. You can kind of explore a little bit, whatever. But then there's going to be a moment where, surprise, all of you, poof, you know, have this new thing, okay? At the same time, again, to give you a sense of like the magnitude of what we're talking about here, there's an awful lot of like bells and whistles being built on top of the existing automobile. And this is DeFi. It's what we talked about before. It's the NFTs. It's these entire ecosystems that are living on top of this underlying foundation. And so when that changes, you can imagine, right? Like there's a lot of people paying a lot of attention to this because it has the potential to provide tremendous benefit in terms of the scaling and security that Danny's talked about. But it also has the potential to maybe have other implications that not everyone is going to foresee right away. And so a lot of attention is being paid to this. And I think it's to the credit of the Ethereum Foundation and all of the researchers and developers there. People aren't like anxious and there's not drama around this. It's sort of like it's been expected for a while. It's been handled. But the sheer volume of constituents and stakeholders that are going to be involved or have been involved or affected 
by this at a hopefully relatively invisible layer kind of way is really mind blowing. Something I think that we have going for us uh, in terms of the Ethereum ecosystem is that nine out of 10, maybe nine, nine out of a hundred Ethereum people, this is the only way. Since very early on, we're like, we're going to scale this thing and it's going to be proof of stake. And everyone is just like anxiously awaiting that day. And you can see that, I mean, the amount of hobbyists and poor Ethereum folks that have participated in this early beacon chain thing, is like, they believe, uh, they believe in it. They're ready for it. They all have skin in the game and they all have capital locked up until this, ultimately this merge. I'd say even if the Ethereum Foundation leadership, even if I disappeared tomorrow, like there's enough momentum here that like the Ethereum network is going to upgrade and migrate to proof of stake. One analogy that I've liked recently, and I think probably still needs some work, but essentially the Ethereum network today is on a rocket blasting out of you know, Earth's atmosphere. And uh, we've run ahead to Earth's orbit. And what we're doing is we're building a sustainable space habitat for the Ethereum community. And ultimately, this rocket will dock at the space habitat. We're getting it all ready for them and then just continue to live kind of in a sustainable way in this new space habitat. Something like that. (laughs) There's no perfect analogy, right? This stuff is so new. (laughs) I like it. Rockets are cool, right? Rockets are cool. Everyone gets rockets. We're all about rockets now, thanks to Elon. So what a move conversation around how the network itself is being managed. And then, as we say, this fundamental positive thing, right? Because it's adding value, it's adding utility, but it's also creating challenges is this equally uncontrollable, independent, open source network of people building things on top. And the one that's really got the attention this time around, back three years ago, we had the attention of all the tokens being issued, the ERC-20 tokens. Now it's about DeFi. It's this decentralized exchange. And just again, for people who are not as familiar with Ethereum, why this is exciting is to me, the capacity to remove the counterparty risk that was a fundamental problem of the financial system. So I I cut my teeth in my my entry into Bitcoin and and crypto was by virtue of being somebody who wrote about the global financial system. I came through Argentina, I wrote about the US financial crisis, the global financial crisis in 2008. And it was really very much about how at the end of the day, these banks sitting in the middle held all the cards. And when they were too big to fail, we had to prop them up because the whole thing would go down. I I don't know whether DeFi is going to fix that because I always worry about whether or not there's some fundamental bug in one of these things that does exactly the same thing. But the tantalizing idea that you and I can enter into an exchange where I lend to you and you borrow from me, and that that contract is not executed by either one of us. And so, but neither is it dependent upon some person, but rather a network that is maintained this way suddenly starts to look really powerful when you place it against that. And then we start to build insurance and we build all these other things on top of it. The idea that we could now have a yield curve that's not dependent upon six big banks in London to set LIBOR, but it's actually you know something that emerges organically out of a decentralized system is really, really interesting. I'm just giving that as a frame for people who understand what is this thing all about and why are people excited about it. But it's very wild west right now. It is crazy, right? The Legos that you refer to, all this sort of stuff. Tell me a little bit from your perspective as somebody who's trying to make sure the plumbing is working, what is it like to maybe use Sheila's analogy to be kind of working on, you know, as the mechanic trying to sort of, you know, get the carburetor working while there's some race car driver, you know, with his foot to the floor uh, (laughs) driving at full pace. First and foremost, fortunately, these layers are very separate. I and much of the like major upgrades that we're trying to work on 
are in this like consensus layer, like the, the cradle. And this user layer where uh, transactions and execution and the EVM and different things happening is kind of like this separated layer. And so we do, fortunately, we can go in and work on the plumbing without disrupting much of the user layer. So that's by design. I think that's like critical to this upgrade going well, is that uh, if you're hanging out in DeFi land, um, you're not you're not very much interrupted this change because the user layer is kind of just carried forward into this new cradle. So that's good. Sometimes I, I open up like gasnow.org right. or, or I look at etherscan yeah. slash gas something and I'm like, oh man, <laughs> we need to fix right. this now. <laughs> right. I mean, I suppose that, that's where the rubber meets the road. Okay, we keep on going this. This, this analogy is perfect, Sheila. Like, rubber meets the road. Um, is the, <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm doubling down. Because <laughs> ultimately that's, the scalability question right there, right? And, and if we do want this to be a, a financial system that is accessible to everybody and has small transactions, not just big ones, high gas fees are going to just price everybody out and all of a sudden it's not doable. So to me, it sounds like it's accentuating the urgency. I don't know. You don't want to be forced to move too fast because you have to get it right. But it does just emphasize that, that you're kind of pushing up against the limit in terms of scalability, right? We felt this quite a bit since, was it 2017, right. CryptoKitties? The initial, like the first dApp that really caught on CryptoKitties, it had very inefficient gas usage. And so I think it artificially kind of inflated the demand for this block space. All of a sudden, these tradable cats made it like, oh crap, we have to get yeah. this done now. <laughs> right. um, and, and, and there's been dozens, I mean, hundreds at this point of people that spend all of their time working on this. We haven't really talked about this. So there's this notion of, of layer one scalability, meaning the foundational platform, just like what does Ethereum provide uh, at its base? Um, and then there's this notion of, of layer two scalability, which is essentially, can we build protocols on top of the foundational protocol that allow us under different assumptions do more? For example, there's this notion of like a payment channel where Michael and I might enter into a payment channel. We both put some assets into this contract and then off-chain, not using any of the resources on-chain, we trade back and forth cryptographic messages saying like, hey, here's five bucks. And he goes, well, here's two bucks. And, and ultimately, after some time of trading these messages back and forth, we can resolve the end result on-chain. That's like a simple version of layer two, where essentially we make a commitment to this base layer and then later resolve the commitment in a more aggregate way. What is really exciting and going on Ethereum today, and which is likely to give us uh, some scalability relief even before sharding, is this, um, this whole world of what we call rollups. And rollups are essentially similar environments to Ethereum uh, that are running in parallel that utilize the block space of Ethereum without utilizing the computation of Ethereum. So a rollup commits to many transactions at once, but then doesn't necessarily run all of the computation on Ethereum. There's a couple of different ways you can do this. One is called optimistic rollup, where you're making these like optimistic commitments that can then be challenged. Another one's called ZK rollup, where you use advanced cryptographic techniques to prove the result of something without running all of the computation actually on chain. Both of these scale uh, massively with the amount of block space that's available. And so even in Ethereum today, without sharding, we can get something like 50 to 100 times the transactions per second if most activity moved into these rollups, uh, these like rollup zones, essentially. And then the exciting thing is with sharding, foundationally, what we get is a ton more block space. So call it 100 times the amount of block space we have today. And so because these rollups scale with the amount of block space at layer one, 
uh, you get a multiple on it. So if you have 100 times scalability from rollups and then you have 100 times more block space, all of a sudden you have 10,000 times the scalability. Even in early discussions around Ethereum scalability in the future of Ethereum, uh, there's always been this notion of like, layer one will always be a finite resource. There are always these other techniques to be able to make commitments to layer one and do things in a more efficient way in layer two. And thus, layer two is always going to be cheaper for certain things. And so the path towards scalability of the system is the complement of these two. And you see the same thing in, in Bitcoin and likely other networks to make, you know, Bitcoin has, I think, one megabyte blocks or something. There's just a very finite mm-hmm. amount of transactions that can go in. So there's this payment channels network called the Lightning Network that is live and is supposed to be the solution of like, how can you actually, as, a, as an end user, transact in a more sane and uh, price efficient way? Yeah. So you can actually pay for a cup of coffee with Bitcoin and not, right. not be hit with like three times the price of that coffee in terms of the fees, right? <laughs> right. Analogy that I was really stuck by, you know, I was at MIT Media Lab for a few years before I came to CoinDesk and Joey Ito used to describe what he saw as sort of layer one, layer two, layer three and so forth as analogous to the structures of the protocols of the internet, right? With TCP IP at the base layer, then we bring in, you know, HTTP or SMTP and these others, you know, for hypertext protocol for, for websites, you know, SMTP for email, and then the apps get built on top of that. I think it's a really useful way to think about it because it, it means that you can not get overly hung up about the scalability and the amount of work that's being done at that base layer and start to, to do this. However, as, as you would well know, right, after Ethereum was launched in 2014, loads of copycats have come out all saying, look, it's not going to scale. And it started out with proof of work. We're going to do proof of stake immediately. We've got all sorts of other bells and whistles that allow us to trade faster, better, more reliably, and so forth. In reality, of course, Ethereum has continued to be by far the biggest and most actively used, even though in many respects it does look, at least at that base layer, as if it's more inefficient. Do they have a chance, for one? Is there an Ethereum killer out there? That's always a question we come up with quite a bit. Does that matter? I mean, is the world going to have multiple chains or does there have to be only one? I suppose also, like, if these things are better, if they are more advanced, like the classic story that people don't understand is like, well, what if somebody comes along with a better Bitcoin? Why aren't they just going to go to that? Well, there's a network effect. There's a whole community story. Speak to that as well as if you can. But there's a bunch in there. Like, is there an Ethereum killer coming? Does it matter? And how is it that Ethereum continues to attract all this interest if it's actually old technology in some respects relative to new stuff coming out? Yeah. And at first, I'm going to speak to the analogy of the layers of internet protocols. That's, that's very fascinating. That's kind of like you abstract functionality at different layers. And so you can kind of black box this component and then build more sophisticated components on top of it. In terms of the layers in these blockchain protocols, some of it might be an abstraction of functionality, but some of it I think might be the abstraction of trust. You say, okay, layer one provides us with this foundation of trust. So then we can make assumptions and build these other things that have slightly different trust models, but can fall back into this layer of trust. Anchor of trust is actually the blockchain. And then yes. It's almost a little bit also how a bank functions as the place that actually verifies the validity of the banknote that everybody's sharing around. Eventually it gets somewhere where somebody checks and says, yeah, that's a legitimately a, a banknote, right? So right. Yeah, yeah right. well, and to kind of bring back, you know, what's turning out to be my favorite point, you know, the trust is actually a result directly of the governance mechanism. So the reason you can trust that base protocol is because of the way the governance is centralized is the fact that, Michael, to a point you made earlier, it's not like someone can just come in and cut you off from access. It's that there is a very complicated scheme underlying this that ensures that there isn't a centralized 
person that can decide, you know, they just don't like you and therefore you can't use their toys, right? Like it is much more complicated than that. And that does engender trust in the system. Right. And foundationally, these protocols, the trust arguments in crypto economic protocols, which we call them, ultimately come to who is the attacker and how much capital do they have to attack this system? You know, and if we assume that there's no attacker with X capital, then we have certain properties, which is very cool. So Ethereum killers. <laughs> so I think many competing projects in the like programmable blockchain space make compromises for scalability gains, for usability gains, uh, often at the expense of decentralization. This comes in many, many flavors. I think like, for example, you could just take the Ethereum blockchain, you can make blocks 10 or 100 times bigger, and you'd have 10 to 100 times more block space and, and be able to handle more transactions, but at a cost. And that cost and that like simple little lever you could pull is that all of a sudden I can't validate the Ethereum blockchain on my home computer or maybe with the amount of bandwidth that I have at my home. And it might kick out 95% of people actually running and validating the network ultimately. So then you have like a much more centralized network. You're relying on like third-party providers and proofs and things that the network is actually as it is. And that's just a simple example. There's many different corners that you can cut. And not to say uh, there are many very valid blockchain projects that are uh, maybe have slightly different philosophies than Ethereum, but actually are trying to do it right. You know, there's always a different set of compromises, I think, per project and what they're willing to do, what quality of service they're willing to provide and like what foundationally, what machines and what users and stuff they're trying to have. So there's some projects I think that are reasonably trying to do, do it right. There's many projects that are cutting corners and I don't find very interesting. I think it actually would be if they did become like backbone of global finance is actually very concerning because they might have fatal security flaws or centralization vectors that, you know, all of a sudden you have three entities that are running global finance implicitly underneath the hood. Um, we don't really want that. There are some impressive projects. We've got Turing Prize winners launching them. I'm deliberately not mentioning any names here just because the crypto tribes, if I mention one, it's not that I mentioned it. So why didn't you mention that one? So <laughs> at the moment, folks, the reason we're talking about Ethereum, we'll come back to all the others at some point. So there's projects that I think have uh, centralization concerns, and I, I hope that they don't win out because that's not the world I'm trying to live in. Then there are projects that I think are very compelling and doing it right. And I think that for the vast majority of them, building out an organic community of users, networks, and, and developers is going to be very difficult. It's a very noisy space. Um, and I think that's one of the most powerful things about Ethereum. And there's a few things. One is Ethereum has like a very strong philosophy of decentralization. Ethereum has like a huge developer community. Do we have any numbers of how many developers are on there? And what, what sort of estimates do we have? Someone knows. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen those graphs where it's like the Ethereum's up here and the other one's yeah. up here. I know anecdotally being at massive hackathons where there's thousands of people that are hacking on a weekend. I know in terms of layer one and the contributions, there's hundreds of people that are working on this full time in terms of like research and client development. And so I'm not saying that it's an impossible task to overtake that, but that there is certainly like network effects in Ethereum that give it power. There's also just a matter of the way I think DeFi works and the way a lot of uh, decentralized applications even beyond DeFi work is that there's naturally network effects there. And that if there are valuable things to interact with and if there are valuable Legos to build on, then it makes sense to be there. Obviously, there are certain types of applications, I think, on Ethereum today that Unfortunately, you're going to be like, I can't even interact here because it's too expensive. But I think with the coming layer twos and 
ultimately sharding, we can kind of continue to capture a lot of those network effects even beyond these like very high value DeFi applications. Yeah, well, I just pulled up Electric Capital. Coindesk actually put this out in December. So it's 2,300 active Ethereum developers monthly versus Bitcoin, which is at a little under 400 average monthly developers. And that was across the third quarter of 2020. So I think you can, I thought it was important to kind of ground that in some actual numbers to just show the distinction there and to recognize that all of that is happening in the context of this transition, this kind of transformation of the underlying consensus algorithm that is going to be really powerful and provide some of this. One thing I wanted to kind of pick up to clarify for some of our listeners is transactions, they're captured in blocks. So the more transactions you can fit in a block, the more transactions you can have. And so that's what the scaling concept really is kind of centered around in in this conversation. So if you have significant limits on how many transactions you can do, then A, you know, things are slower, they're more expensive, all the obvious things that would flow from that. Uh, And so a lot of what the transition to proof of stake is designed to do is enhance security. But I just wanted to, to clarify what the scalability is about here. And you can see why this is important. So with the NFTs, the explosion in that space that we'll be talking about starting next week, uh, with DeFi, which again sits kind of, you can think about it as sitting kind of on top of Ethereum, uh, the volume of desired transactions is, is really going to just huge hockey stick. You know, it already has, and it's going to continue to do so. So the sooner we can get to true scale in the Ethereum you know, network, better off the ecosystem is going to be. Yeah, absolutely agree. Those 2,300 people are quite busy and active. Yes, a lot of demand for their services, put it that way. I think there's probably more. (laughs) (laughs) I bet that's probably true. I think it's gone Uh, up since then, right? These are dated numbers. And every quarter, there's more and more entry. People get trained, you know, in this. It's a hot, hot area. I want to do this conversation in this direction a little bit here, Danny. And that is like, it's not entirely an apples to comparison, right? In terms of Ethereum development and Bitcoin. I mean, you started out at the beginning talking about this is evolving thing. Like it's there's people working on it and everything else. Absolutely. Yeah. But one of the criticisms that come from the Bitcoin community when looking at this massive thing saying it's too complex, like it's insecurity is just there in all of that complexity. And the more layers and bells and whistles and things that are being built on it, it's just going to like, you want this base layer of this one trick pony that does one thing at the bottom, the TCP IP, the, the Bitcoin base layer, right? That is the Bitcoin maxi kind of one of the Bitcoin maxi critique of Ethereum. What do you say to that? You know, if all of our aspirations were just to be digital gold, then by all means, I think that you have enough functionality there. The aspirations of the Ethereum network, I mean, the aspirations of the internet too, is to handle much more complexity. And, and we often talk about this notion of functional escape velocity. Essentially, you need enough scale and enough extensibility to be able to build all those other layers on top. And I would argue that to do the types of things that we want to see and the types of things we're seeing on Ethereum, like DeFi and all the other interesting applications, is that Bitcoin doesn't have the functional escape velocity to be able to handle that. If you bring in trusted sidechains and and other things like that, which people do, uh, like consortium Bitcoin sidechains, then you can get it, but you don't really get it out of the base layer. Really what we're seeking is to meet the demand of a functional escape velocity in terms of base layer scalability and base layer functionality to provide the foundation to build the global decentralized internet finance, everything that uh, people are dreaming of. There's a cost of uh, complexity. There's a cost of complexity in analysis. There's cost of complexity in shipping time. I can tell you that. (laughs) But ultimately, I think there's a requisite base amount of functionality and complexity that you need to build the future, at least that the Ethereum community is trying to build. 
Yeah, I think it really is just about like, what is the goal? You know, what is the goal of these various things? And I think the goals of Bitcoin and the goals of Ethereum are are actually, in my mind, they're different. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that's why I, my view is that there is, is very much room for both of these things and that they are useful and will increasingly become useful for different aims and different purposes, you know, as time progresses. And I think we're already seeing some of that. So in my mind, you know, I think there's often this Bitcoin versus Ethereum, you know, it's kind of a very, like, there's like a, like a cage match one could do almost, right? And like, yeah, you've never been on Twitter. Stage, right? That's, yeah. yeah right? I would definitely agree. I mean, these are both like fantastic experiments in attempting to re-architect the way we do things and the way we think about things. There are definitely similarities, right? These are crypto economic protocols that have foundational assets in them and, and do things in a decentralized way. But I think they ultimately are trying to do different things. Yeah, I think that's right. So just one kind of maybe question as we move towards close. You mentioned just thinking about the internet. And so Michael had that analogy about the different internet layers and DCB IP, et cetera. You know, but let's get more concrete about that. Like, how do you see Ethereum helping build a, a better internet? How do you see the work that's happening here, whether it's work around governance? I'm just going to throw that out there. Don't, you don't have to bite on that piece. You know, how is it going to help us build, build a better internet? I definitely think that Ethereum gives users of the citizens of the world a power of choice uh, that the internet currently does not give us. Essentially, the powers that be control our data, monitor our data, use us as the product. The financial rails that we interact with are, are very restricted, especially for end consumers. Not, you know, we're not playing the same game as, as Wall Street. We learned that fast last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And what Ethereum does and in other decentralized technologies is shifts the power dynamic from these single powerful entities into networks and into individuals. I think that disintermediating the power and kind of shifting the trajectory of the internet today is, I mean, ultimately what we're doing. I know that's a little bit hand wavy and abstract. I think with finance, it's becoming very obvious how that happens um, in that, you know, the developer down the street can uh, write new financial contracts and interact with these new financial rails. There are other powerful paradigms that uh, can be built on Ethereum and decentralized technologies. Uh, one is like the notion of identity and owning your identity through cryptography and zero knowledge proofs and other things like I can actually own my identity. I can uh, share components of that to parties as I want. Another idea is like the ownership of communities. Um, a lot of these communities that we have on the internet don't exist uh, and don't really have a notion of themselves outside of the centralized servers that they interact in. But through these networks, you have actual ownership, actual representation of networks and that can exist independent of the uh, foundational entity there. I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic about some of Reddit's experiments there. I think to kind of radically move more in that direction of, of ownership of communities and some of their experimentations with community points and stuff. I think it's ultimately giving users, giving the citizens of the globe a uh, choice on the internet. That's a great place to wind this up because it is a, a constant theme in Money Reimagined. The goal really is to think hard about the underlying infrastructure of the social contracts that you know, essentially have amongst ourselves as global citizens and the existing models, whether it's for finance or for these large centrally controlled internet platforms really aren't sufficient for the world that we're creating with this interconnected, but very fragmented and non-geographical relationships. We talk about surveillance capitalism a bit on, on this show. We talk about really the problem of these big, big gatekeepers and, and really the ultimate question of right citizens as digital citizens that we maintain so i'm really glad that you took it there 
Danny, really, really fantastic to have you along. Thank you for doing this. Very timely, so much happening around this. It's such a complex topic, but it's it's fascinating. And to have you break it down and help out people understand it and sort of have a bit of a sense of where it's all going, we're really, really grateful. So thanks so much for, for doing this. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's fun chatting. Yeah. All righty. So that's all for now, folks. Thanks very much for joining us. Stay tuned for another edition of Money Reimagined in a week's time. We'll catch you on the other side. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, and Danny Ryan. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Musso, produced and announced by Adam E. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>